Hi, um, just before this episode starts, I'm just going to give a little bit of a trigger warning, um, which I do try to do on, on episodes if, if need be. So today's episode is going to continue looking at the topic of last week of um, particularly online, online harassment, particularly towards women. Today, there's going to be um, a lot of talk around the Weinstein case and the Weinstein scandal, um, which came out in the New York Times article about five years ago now. So naturally, it um, the, the episode will look at um, abuse of women, sexual assault um, and various other crimes that Weinstein was um, accused of. And at one point, I do play some um, footage and recording of a law room transcript from the prosecutors of Weinstein and it is um, some of the language in it is a little bit graphic as I'm sure you can understand with the crimes that he was accused of so just um, making you aware of that first if this episode isn't for you by all means sit it out Um, but if you do listen I think it's a fascinating topic um, and I uh, would recommend, even if you don't want to listen to it, perhaps going and reading around the the topic in more detail yourself as you see fit. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of That One Time. Oh, I nearly spilled my coffee then. That was a very professional start, wasn't it? Um, that one time I dated a Mormon, the coffee has survived. Should be very glad to know. Um, I hope that you've had a good week. Um, thank you again, as, as, as always, to people who um, listen and message in, whether that is through an email or through um, a comment on Instagram or, or whatever. Um no rape threats this week, so that's a, that's a bonus on on what I had to report last week. So uh, who knows? Maybe the um, the issue of online online harassment has gone. Doubt it. But yeah, n- no no threats this week, which is lovely. Um, I the the episode that I did last week was on how to handle online harassment or examples of, and um, you know naturally as. Um, I often talk about on here, um, this this forum. Um, it's the the minorities that generally have to handle it more than the the majority. So, um, LGBT, um, women, particularly women of colour. Um, and I was looking last week at people in women, particularly in the media, who who handle or have had to handle online abuse. So I was looking at people at AOC. Um, Jamila Jamil, I looked at the really horrible treatment of, of quite high profile um, kind of media bait that there's been like Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan and stuff and um, a complete without irony um, someone uh, someone had listened had, had then commented on, on my Instagram feed of but what about men yes yes you are right men um get much more online abuse than women, women of colour, um, LGBT people. Men really, really have it hard, don't they? Um, so I very simply just just commented back and said, yes, if you actually listen to the episode, then, you know, da-da-da-da-da. And 
and um, people just like to jump on and complain but whoever this was probably didn't even listen to it in the first place but um the the online um annoyance from people continues but there we go um because of the um topic i looked at last week of um online harassment and online abuse particularly the treatment of women in the media um and a book that i've been reading over the last week or so called she said by Jodie Cantor and Megan Tuohy, um, which looked into the Harvey Weinstein scandal. It's, it, I mean, it's, just, it's an issue that, um, a situation I've been really interested in for years. Um, I've done a lot of reason around it. I've read Rose McGowan's book. Um, I went to see her speak. Um, I've watched her documentary series about the, the entire situation. It's just a, a fascinating, terrifying, but fascinating topic and part of media history. Um, but the book she said is without doubt the best piece of non-fiction I've ever read. I cannot, cannot stress enough and encourage enough of you to, to go ahead and read that if you haven't. Um, I'm going to be looking at it in a lot of detail today on this episode rather um and normal i mean i'm quite a voracious reader i read very very quickly but i've purposely read this book very slowly because i wanted to take the time to really um take in every interview that's included every person that's named um every part of the investigation that i just didn't know about before um, and so I'm enjoying reading it very, very slowly on purpose because I want to really take everything in that, that's in the text. Um, and so that's going to be the, the focus of today is continuing in a way the topic from last week of the, the kind of online harassment that people face, but particularly the, the way that media is an incredibly powerful tool in that um, it can support people and make truths come out into the light um, as in the Weinstein scandal but also is something that can be manipulated and bought it seems um, and it's very very clear that that what was happening behind the scenes with the Weinstein scandal. Um, so just some other things that have come out in the news this week um, that have again made me think about the role of the media and particularly the role of um, men or I should say white cis heterosexual men in the media. Um, in the eye this week, there was an article around the number of journalists who have been leaving the BBC. Um, so John Sopel and Emily uh, Matlis, I think that's how you pronounce his surname, um, have been leaving or are due to leave the BBC to go and join another company called Global. And in the article, it seems that one of the issues around it are that um, BBC um, seems to be a little bit entrenched in its ways, that there's more of a glamour associated now with working for streaming platforms like Netflix or um, some of the new platforms that are opening up, like Global, as, as is mentioned here. Um, and that at one point the article mentions that when it's um, the BBC are maybe having to come to terms with a new world of media and um, they recently put BBC Three back on television which I don't think is really the answer when 
everything's more online than it ever has been before but there we go um the article mentions quote a low level eye-rolling state of discontent amongst the newsrooms um as if there's maybe a lack of um passion for the the people who work at the bbc to maybe think outside the box or maybe a little bit of snobbery around um journalism that's not the kind of old guard of the bbc i don't know but it was just an article that interested me anyway and then in the same paper um there was criticism understandably of prince andrew um for the deal um i suppose the the nda and the non-disclosure agreements um or the payoff you maybe want to call it as well to uh, virginia um, who has quite publicly come out and accused him of um, sexual assault. Now, it's been revealed that he has given a donation to a charity of her choice um, and that the donation is to, quote, fight the evils of sex trafficking. Um, seems a little bit on the nose, personally, that the money he's giving as a result of sexual alleged, I don't want to get sued, um, alleged sexual assault is going to a charity su to support people who are victims of sexual assault and sexual trafficking, when it seems quite widely known that Epstein, Andrew, may have been part of that. People like Trump and Clinton, it seems, have been part of this, the cycle as well, um, were involved in the sex tra trafficking of women. It just doesn't sit well, the, the, the idea of his money going towards that. And then there's the bigger argument as well as to where that money's coming from, because he's not worked a day in his life, as he lets face it. So I don't know where he's getting that money from, but there we go. Um, and just both of those articles, I just found um, interesting alongside the other issues that I've been reading around this week and the particular topic of... Um, uh, media treatment particularly of um, women and also the covering up of stories around women's abuse as well. Now um, before I go further into the the research and the reading I've done this week on the, the Weinstein case in particular and don't get me wrong I'm not going to be bringing anything new to the table I'm not an investigative journalist um, I just find the topic incredibly interesting and um, it's is an issue that um, I've you know, mentioned and spoken about before, the, the treatment of, of women at the hands of men. So I just thought I would put an episode together where I can kind of give you some of the facts of the situation and you are then more than welcome to, as I always suggest, to go and look into a further reading yourself. But um, I have to come back to Gossip Girl. And I know I mentioned it last week. And uh, I know that it's maybe not the most, um, you know, high faluting piece of media on the television. But, um, like I said in the last episode, I was a huge fan of the original series, which had a lot of faults, don't get me wrong. Number one being the fact that Dan was supposedly the Gossip Girl all along. I mean, that's just a complete illogical plot line, but there we go. Um, but the fact that in the new series, it has definitely um, grown up in terms of its social awareness. And yes, I know that me kind of talking about it in this context maybe seems a little bit ridiculous, but 
just in the episode that I was watching this week. And again, it just kind of, I think, just timely fitting with everything I was reading this week. It's looking at um, one of the young girls having to come to terms with the fact that her father is essentially going through a Weinstein scandal, that um, women have started to come out saying that they um, were abused by him or they were given drink by him and they would wake up in the morning not knowing what happened. Um, there's been investigations into his old phones and old emails and etc. And compared to, and the reason I'm just highlighting it is because when the first series came out and really even when I was a teenager, um, they didn't, there was never ever a dialogue in any type of te- teenage television show around anything to do with consent and female safety and male privilege or anything like that. And so I think that if I think from the point of view of, say, my niece watching it now, I think it's actually quite a important um, show in, in, a, in terms of that demographic because it's dealing with things like consent, like memory, um, drink, um, and using terms like gaslight, for example, which wasn't even on the radar when I was a teenager, the idea that people purposefully lie to make you look bad. And what was really interesting in the episode this week is the young girl who is trying to come to terms with her anger at her dad, but then also the, the, the kind of empathy that she has for him because it's her dad at the end of the day. There's a scene where she just kind of stops and looks around her on the subway and she just sees um, multiple women being kind of accidentally groped by a man when they like fall into her on the subway or they say something lewd to her or, um, you know, a man just openly looks at a woman. And I just think it's quite an interesting way to get this very, very important topic into a um, popular and wide-ranging teenage show, which it is essentially, because I think the younger that people are aware of these problems of women not reporting a crime and men thinking that they can get away with a crime, the earlier that that's discussed for boys and girls, I don't think that that can be a problem. I think that's only going to be um, a positive, in my point of view anyway, but but there we go. Um, it's on iPlayer, feel free to go and watch it. You might think it's complete trash, but I think for what it is, it's for a bit of kind of enjoyable fluff. It has... Um, a a better message I think than a lot of other um kind of shows of that ilk particularly when I was when I was that age as well but there we go I'm also now showing how old I am but there we are now um there's a really famous book called Sisterhood is Forever which has a tagline the women's anthology for a new millennium and it's been updated a number of times and essentially it's just a series of essays from um, women and feminists such as Gloria Steinem amongst others who have written about the the issue of um, uh, women and abuse towards women over decades and I'm just going to reference one part of the book which links into with this overall topic of particularly media treatment of women and it's, a, an, it's an essay by Gloria Steinem which is titled The Media and the Movement, A User's Guide. And in it, she says, 
quote, I've defined media here as everything that represents reality from newspapers and talk shows to the internet. Movies, novels, poetry, advertisements and other works of the imagination are crucial too, but that's a different story. Second, I've used past examples that might offer ideas for the future. After all, if we don't learn to use the media, mainstream and alternate, global and local, and by use, I mean monitor, infiltrate, replace, protest, teach with, create our own, whatever the situation demands, we will not only be invisible in the present, but absent from history's first draft. And I just thought that that was quite a pertinent quote in terms of the idea that media has the power to make a situation or a story huge, whether that be important and relevant or not, or as Steiner mentions there, invisible. And I think quite often, particularly in this, in the, the, the things I'm going to look at today, it's the victim, maybe victim is not the right word, the the minority, I get probably is the better word then, is made to seem invisible or unimportant. And it is the media machine, as always, run by that patriarchal white man that can dictate completely what it is that is spoken about. Um, and the issues today of, of Weinstein and beyond are definitely no different to that. Now, if you are not aware of the Weinstein story, and I'd be very surprised if you've never heard of it, um, heard about it. So the initial article was published um, on the 5th of October 2017 by Joe DeCanter and Megan Tui, and it was written in the New York Times, and the headline was Harvey Weinstein paid off sexual harassment accusers for decades. Now, in the book, she said, you find out that they were basically working on this article for months, if not, you know, years in the process. And how even to a couple of hours beforehand, they were really having to fight to get people on the record to talk about it. Um, women were terrified to speak out for retribution, for the fact that a lot of them had already... Um, made a signed non-disclosure um, agreement so they couldn't speak out because they would then be um, likely to be sued or, or whatever for speaking out. Um, and you can read the article online still. And I'm just going to just read the very um, opening section of it. So it says, two decades ago, the Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein invited Ashley Judd so just on a side note, she's one of the first actresses who openly spoke out about it after, again, a lot of um, cajoling and, and persuading from the two, two reporters, understandably. Um, invited Ashley Judd to the Peninsula Beverly Hills Hotel for what the young actress expected to be a business breakfast meeting. Instead, he had sent her up to his room where he appeared in a bathrobe and asked if he could give her a massage or she could watch him in the shower, she recalled in an interview. How do I get out of this room as fast as possible without alienating Harvey Weinstein, Miss Judd said she remembers thinking. Now, I'm just going to play you a very short um, clip from um, Ashley Joe talking about the, not the incident, but the kind of revelation of coming out about it. Um, and like with any of these types of stories, there's all sorts that you can go and watch online of interviews um, 
with a lot of the 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 alleged um, victims of Weinstein, so like Ashley Judd, Rose McGowan, Mira Savino, Rosanna Arquette. And what's really interesting is when you watch a lot of them, um, is the common factors in what they say that Weinstein did. So he clearly had quite a um, uh, preferred way of getting these women, for want of a better term, always seems to be in a bathroom. For example, always in his hotel room um, and all of the women, again, talk about how they were terrified because they knew the power Weinstein had and that they knew that um, they could never speak up about the fact that they knew that their career was essentially going down the toilet because of him. Um, Mira Savino, for example, has come out and spoken about how she knew deep down that the reason she wasn't getting roles um, and she was being viewed as being difficult and problematic was because he was just blacklisting her constantly. Um, she found out after the Weinstein scandal um, was published or came out in the newspapers, for example, that she was due to have a role in Lord of the Rings, um, but Peter Jackson um, declined giving Mary Savino the role because Weinstein had said she was difficult to work with and so put someone else into the role on purpose and essentially said that if you give Savino the role, then the money won't be there because it was um, a picture that the Weinstein company put money into. So just this, the just a huge kind of, um, octopus of a man, also how ugly he is compared to an octopus, but the kind of little tentacles he has out to control everything, like an entire industry. It's insane what this man was able to do. But anyway, um, this is just, like I said, a short clip from um, a, a, an interview with um, Ashley Judd about the, the story. And everyone knew that I was talking about Harvey. He was named in the comments that were posted on Variety's website. Sometimes people called him by name, sometimes they used loosely disguised names like Schmarvy, Schmeinstein. But you, you didn't name him in the piece. No, I didn't name him in the piece. I was, I was talking with Variety for their women in film issue or their powerful women in Hollywood issue, whatever they call it. And um, the journalist asked the question, had I ever been harassed? And I was like, not yes, but hell yes. And everyone in the room with me, my team was like, no, no, no. I was like, well, of course I'm going to tell the story. I've been, t you know, my dad was with me when it happened. And I came straight from that hotel room at the peninsula down to the lobby and immediately told my dad what had happened. And again, that's something that's really interesting about the investigation is that a lot of the women, even though afterwards they didn't speak about it because they signed non-disclosure agreements at the time, um, Rose McGowan, for example, if you read her book, she says how she told so many people about it and she was basically just ignored because it was a best known secret by everybody that Weinstein did this, but he was so powerful no one ever did anything about it, ever. So he was just allowed to get away with it. Now, when the article was published, um, they had um, the, the two writers, uh, Cantor and Tui, had a list of, of definite people that had come forward and, and spoken about the harassment they'd had um, from Weinstein. Because as you can imagine understand, they had to be very careful with everything that they wrote so that they wouldn't be sued themselves. 
So they had um, an assistant in 1990 who had left Miramax, um, Laura Madden in 92, Gwyneth Paltrow in 94, Ashley Judd 96, Rose McGowan 97, Zelda Perkins in 98, Emily Nestor in 2014, Amber Batalana in 2015, Lauren O'Connor 2015 and another assistant um, from a New York office in 2015. Now, what really made this story come to light was um, a memo that came from um, a woman called Lauren O'Connor who worked for or in Weinstein's company and she wrote to the, the people who worked there and basically tried to explain and call out what had been happening to her and, and women in the um the Weinstein company. Um and this was then used as part of the evidence against Weinstein to get the article out there. And there's a documentary called Untouchable on iPlayer um and Lauren O'Connor's interviewed here and she talks about the the memo in, in much more detail. And um when the two reporters contacted Lauren O'Connor about using the memo, um, she had no idea how, no um, knowledge that it had been leaked out of the company um, to reporters. And obviously the two women were reporting on it for good. You know, they wanted to get Weinstein in jail. But this woman, and you can see in the interview um, on the documentary, was terrified of this memo coming up because she knew the power that Weinstein had. Um, so the memo says, and this is what she sent um, on Tuesday, 3rd of November, 2015. There is a toxic environment for women at this company. I've wanted nothing more than to work hard and succeed here. My reward for my dedication and hard work has been to experience repeated harassment and abuse from the head of this company. I've also been witness to and heard about other verbal and physical assaults Harvey has inflicted on other employees. I am a 28-year-old woman trying to make a living and a career. Harvey Weinstein is a 64-year-old world-famous man and this is his company. The balance of power is me, zero, Harvey Weinstein, 10. And that was a real, um, like, explosion in the story. It really, um, like, physically in print laid out exactly what the um, accusations and problems were. But... There were so many other things going on behind the scenes with Weinstein as well that just were consistently covered up. So, for example, um, there was a story about how he had raised money for an AIDS foundation and had siphoned off something like half a million dollars, $500,000, and had put the money raised from the foundation into his Broadway production of Finding Neverland, which was bombing by all accounts. So he took money that was donated to an AIDS charity and put it into his own um, company and his own pro and into his own projects. Um, and then um, there was kind of a, a term that went around called Friends of Harvey. Um, and at one point you find out in the book that he actually asked one of his interns to 
to delete a document called Friends of Harvey, which essentially listed all of the women he'd paid off over the years. Um, and um, one of the women that he um, allegedly assaulted or was, you know, aggressive towards, um, he told her, quote, you are at Harvey Weinstein University and I decide if you graduate. I mean, just the most vile, constant, um, like verbal abuse and quite open about it at the same time, which is just very bizarre considering, um, you know, he then tried everything to try and cover it up. But I think, you get the impression when you read around it that he just felt he was completely untouchable, that he could literally do anything. And because he had the money, he had the resources, he had the friends um, or kind of people who feared him, that he could literally get away with anything. But when um, the story was was about to come out, um, he was absolutely obsessed, it seems, with trying to find out... Um, whether Gwyneth Paltrow was included in the um, accusers, and in the in the book you find out that Gwyneth Paltrow was one of the early people who he um, assaulted, and she was like a lot of the other women terrified of talking about it. And up until, say, the week before the publication of the story, she was umming and ahhing whether to give her name to it or not. And just beforehand, she texted one of the writers and just said, quote, Since I feel undequipped to make this decision under a barrel I'm going to hold, I feel sorry to have let you down. I really do. I'm so torn. Um, and she also says that, she was worried about having what she called a private reckoning from Weinstein because he was, quote, the most important man of my career. And that's really sad, um, the idea that these women were in such a situation where they knew that this man who had abused them could also destroy them um, professionally and financially within one fell swoop. So what what, what were they going to do? They were just going to take a payment and shut up, weren't they? Because that was the easier thing to do. But again, what's really just disturbing about Weinstein's reaction to this is he seemed obsessed with the idea that Paltrow was one of the women who was going to come forward, almost as if like she was a little pet to him. Um, and on the day of the article, he contacted the, the New York Times and the two women who had been writing the article um, and told them to get a sense of humour, um, that he prayed every day for the New York Times um, and that he you know, was almost um, shocked that the women couldn't just take it as, as a laugh, the fact that all of these stories were out there about him. And he seemed to kind of switch between absolute anger and fury one minute and then almost finds it like a bit of an enjoyable piss take the next. It's just so, so strange. Now, in the documentary, it's called Untouchable, The Rise and Fall of Harvey Weinstein. There are multiple people interviewed to give their, their story and point of view on it. And um, one clip I'm just going to play you is where um, there is one of the victims, or not, not a victim rather, but um, one of the women who came forward to speak about what she'd witnessed rather than, than being harassed herself. Um, called Zelda Perkins, she reveals how when 
um, Harvey became aware that things were being said in the open, he essentially bombarded her with phone calls non-stop to get her to shut up or to find out what she knew. Um, and so this is just a, a little clip of, of him um, that she'd recorded of him trying to persuade her not to say anything. I genuinely felt that I might be in danger and I felt that I may need evidence in court. Um, anyway, I'll just put him here. So it's Harvey and I really need to talk to you. But I'd love to see you tonight in the bar, place of your choice. You know, and you know, just to work out anything you guys are feeling and you know, just to make it happy for you. I mean, no, no one has been more loyal to you personally than me and I really need your help, you know, right now to sort this out. So please, 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 please call me. You know, I'm begging you. So thank you. Um, and that's something that, again, seems to be part of his pattern, that when he realises that he's about to be found out, he will beg for forgiveness and use that incredibly um, gaslighting manipulation technique of no one's been more loyal to you than me, no one's been a bigger supporter of you than me, because you know, at the end of the day, he had given them a job. You know, he had given them these access to various things. So no one's been a bigger supporter of you than me. Well, yeah, he was until he then tried to, you know, assault and rape you. Um, and just the idea that he would leave those messages on a voice is just disgusting. And it's something that comes up again and again and again in the, the um, research about him. There's another brilliant clip, and I say brilliant in terms of it being interesting, um in the documentary where he's talking to reporters and again he tries to use that manipulation technique to get the media on his side by saying that he's like the good guy he he will help the media he'll help the story and you know he'll be the one that's um uh will collaborate with the media rather than publish you know bullshit stories like the new york times have so again this is just a little recording of him outside of his house trying to again persuade the media to be on his side i'm doing okay not trying i gotta get help guys you know what we all make mistakes second chance i hope okay no problem thanks guys you know what? I've always been loyal to you guys. Awesome. Not like those fucking pricks who treat you like shit. I've been the good guy. I've been the good guy. I'm going to get help. I mean, it's all—it's just horrible, and it's what predators do, and it's what um, offenders do, and it's the idea. Oh, I deserve a second chance. Well, when you look at the story, he was given multiple chances to change his behaviour and to correct it, and just never ever did. And to be so blatant and almost like blasé about it as well. It's just horrible. Um, one thing that really struck me, though, about the um, research and the... Not research, sorry. The cover-up around him with a number of people who were involved in trying to shut the victims up and try to help him. Now, I think there's a number of reasons for that. One, I think people in the company, particularly friends and his brother, and his brother has a lot to answer for, but they wanted to obviously help him, 
And what's also mentioned quite a lot in the book from people who were in his circle, if he went down, the entire company went down and therefore hundreds of employees went down and therefore their families went down. And so there was this huge knock-on effect of if this one man at the top went, then it would affect the lives and incomes and jobs and careers of hundreds of people below him. Um, and I can kind of understand that, um, but it doesn't mean that that's helping anyone else, particularly the, the victims of him. But also there is a huge financial incentive to be um, uh, like a lawyer working for him because he just had money coming out of, 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 of everywhere. Um, and so there, there, there are a number of lawyers, one, for example, called Lisa Bloom, who charged him $895 an hour um, and were all part of the, the conspiracy of trying to really find loopholes in the law so that they could um, help him and therefore help themselves as well. Now, Lisa Bloom um, is a lawyer and she was um, heavily involved in the case and trying to um, make it go away, basically. And I think for me, her involvement is the worst of all. She comes out really badly in the in in the research in the book, um, and particularly how how she goes about trying to support Harvey Weinstein. I don't know whether maybe it's worse because she's a woman, um, and I think that's possibly quite a sexist thing for me to say. Um, but I I think Rose McGowan's spoken about it before that people need to be aware that it isn't just men who are involved in this scandal and a cover up. It has been women, and it's been the women who were on his side as well. Um, and I think that particularly Lisa Bloom's involvement, as I'll read to you in a minute, is really um, unpleasant when you think that she's defending this man for assaulting women, but she's supporting him. It's like I can never get my head around the idea of women voting for Trump when he openly said he was, he bragged about gra grabbing women's pussies. Um, I just don't, I, I just don't understand it. Um, and I, she's the same. Now, um, she, um, Lisa Bloom, this is, um, wrote an email in around 2016, I think it was, where she basically outlines what her plan of attack is to help him to discredit the women um, and to try and shut down the New York Times article. Um, and I'm going to read it to you. And I had to read it three or four times when I first got through it because it's so selfish on her part. It's so capitalistic and it's just so, um, I don't know whether it's, it's not purposely ignorant because she knows exactly what the, what the situation is. Um, she refers to, at times, Rose, and that's Rose McGowan, who was one of the first people to come out and speak out against him. And she's so derogatory towards Rose McGowan in, in this. So anyway, um, the, the email states, Harvey... It was a treat to speak with you today, though yes, we'd all prefer better circumstances. I've spent the rest of the day reading Jack and Sarah's thoughts. 
and thorough reports about Rose, who truly comes across as a disturbed pathological liar, and also your former assistant who seems to be less of a concern. I also read through a lot of Rose's Twitter feed to get a sense of her and watched her short film, Dawn. I'm no film critic, but I found it dreadful. But telling as to who Rose is, boy meets girl, girl trusts boy, boy murders girl, all men suck, the end. I feel equipped to help you against the roses of the world because I've represented so many of them. They start out as impressive, bold women, but the more one presses for evidence, the weaknesses and lies are revealed. She doesn't seem to have much going on these days, except her rapidly escalating identity as a feminist warrior, which seems to be entirely based on her online rants. For her to keep up her Rose Army following, she must continue ramping up the outrageousness of her diatribes. Clearly, she must be stopped in her ridiculous, defamatory attacks on you. She's dangerous. You are right to be concerned. Now, before I continue, so um, she says that Rose McGowan, Rose, is a disturbed pathological liar. Um, thinks that the best way to then win Harvey Weinstein round is to slag off her filmmaking, which to be fair, it probably did win him round. Um, and she's dangerous. So the woman Harvey Weinstein raped is dangerous. It's just mind boggling. Anyway, she continues. Options after my initial read, which I can flesh out on our next call. One, initiating friendly contact with her through me or other good intermediary. And after establishing a relationship, work out a win-win key question. What does she want? To direct it appears. So she's openly saying she's going to fake being a friend of Rose McGowan in order to then... Um, blackmailer, gaslighter, shit her up behind the scenes to help Harvey Weinstein out. This is a female lawyer. Um, she then continues to say um, to, quote, run an online campaign to push back and call her out as a pathological liar. A few well-placed articles now will go a long way if things blow up for us down the line. We can place an article, re her becoming increasingly unglued, so that when someone Googles her, this is what pops up and she is decredited. We have all the facts based on publicly available information. This can begin simultaneous with number one. A cease and desist letter from me, warning her of the violation of the agreement with you and putting her on notice of causes of action. For CA claims of false light, invasion of privacy, defamation, etc. Now, again, the idea that they were going to purposely put stories online to make Rose McGowan seem mental. And she goes on to say in another part of the um, email to, to Harvey Weinstein that um, um, she says, I googled your name and a few obnoxious articles do pop up. I work with the leading repu reputation management company that can backlink positive articles and make a firewall which prevents negative pieces from being ranked on Google. Your first page of Google is key as 95% never go beyond the first Google page. Let's improve this. It's easy to do. So she's openly admitting 
to manipulating search engines so that the first articles that appear about Weinstein will be positive and the first articles that appear about Rose McGowan will be negative. Um, and then she says, which is even worse, if it can get worse, this is one of her suggestions. Start the Weinstein Foundation, focusing on gender equality in film, etc., Establish the Weinstein Standards, which seek to have one third of films directed by women, written by women, and passing the Bechdel test. She then has to explain to Weinstein what the Bechdel test is. Announce she will immediately raise standards, re-gender parity, in very specific ways and all of the films under your control. You get the idea. These details can be worked out, but the point is, you decide to be a leader and raise the bar in the concrete, headline-grabbing way. So basically, make a foundation where you seem to put out the word that women are alright um, after the fact. So you put in this in place after you've then assaulted and raped about f 4 million women to make it look like you're really supporting women. And this is coming from the mind of a woman. I, I, I just can't get my head around it. It's just insane. Um, in the documentary, again, they, they speak to a number of women who realised how untouchable Weinstein was for a long, long time because years after their own assault from him, they meet him at a conference um, and a charity event for women. And he's there giving a speech and donating and da da da, and women are hanging off him. Just, it's just like I almost can't find the words at just how um, horrible the situation is that he was abusing women for decades, but then put himself in the situations where he was like a a, a fighter of women. And people have done this, you know, he's not the only one by far to have done this. But I think what really kind of struck me was the fact that this kind of, it was also the brainchild of a woman at the same time. It's, you know, I'm running out of, of um, things to say about it, but like I, I can't stress enough how just, just to go and read about it, the book, she said, it's, it's just an incredible piece of, piece of, of, of writing. You'd think it was fiction, you'd think it was made up, but it's not. Now, in my reading and research as well, is I read another book a little while ago by Michael Wolfe, which is about Trump. And it's called The Fire and Fury Inside the Trump White House. And it's, as you can imagine, it's very honest, very, very critical of Trump. Um, but what's really interesting is the names that appear in both stories and in both situations... So, for example, there are photographs um, of um, Trump with Weinstein, of Weinstein with Trump, of Trump with Epstein, of Epstein with Weinstein, of Trump with Clinton and Clinton with Epstein and Clinton with Weinstein and Weinstein with da 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 da, -da um, of Weinstein with Kevin Spacey and Kevin Spacey with Trump. And all of these men all knew each other. Um, and basically facilitated what seems to be like a Hollywood rape ring for decades. And everyone knew 
but nobody knew. And everyone talked about it, but nobody talked about it. One of the names that appears in both the books, so the She Said book about Weinstein and the Fire and Fury book about Trump, um, is a man called Roger Ailes, um, who was seemed to be really quite prolific in terms of trying to cover up scandals for both men, Trump and, and Weinstein. And in the Fire and Fury book, I'm just going to read you a short section um, where he talks about Trump's very um, uncomfortable relationship with, with the media. So it says, quote, A paradox of the new strength of conservative media was Trump himself. During the campaign, when it suited him, he had turned on Fox. If there were other media opportunities, he took them. In the past month, Ailes, so Roger Ailes, a frequent Trump caller and after-dinner advisor had all but stopped speaking to the president, piqued by the constant reports that Trump was bad-mouthing him as he praised a newly attentive Murdoch who had, before the election, only ever ridiculed Trump. Um, the conundrum was that the conservative media saw Trump as its creature, while Trump saw himself as the star. It was a cult of personality, and he was the personality. He was the most famous man in the world. Everyone loved him, or they ought to. And I think that that description of Trump, you could quite easily copy and paste that into a description of Weinstein, a description of um, Epstein. Um, it mentions Murdoch, for example, and, you know, he's literally like the devil on earth as well. Um and the reason I've mentioned this bit is because Roger Ailes is mentioned here, who supported Trump, but when it didn't suit him, got out, who supported Weinstein, it becomes very clear in the She Said book, but got out when it didn't suit him anymore. And um, just on, again, you know, Trump for a second, the idea of the manipulation of media, um, he, in his four years even though he was the king of calling out false news, um, an article from the Washington Post claims that in his four years of presidency, he himself made 30,573 false claims himself. So he came up with stories that were false. Um, in his first 100 days of presidency, he um, said 492 false statements which over his presidency averaged around 21 a day. Um, and I think that what becomes really clear with men like this is they start to believe their own rhetoric and they start to believe their own false stories. And definitely for Weinstein, that seems to be true, that he almost seems to have told so many lies and signed so many things and paid off so many women, he can't seem to remember what is and isn't true um, and seems to remember things, whether purposefully or not, completely different to everyone else around him. Now, what is, I think, remarkable about this story is that um, Weinstein seems to be obsessed with but also able to make people shut up and not talk about things ever again. 
so that he can essentially get away with with a crime. So this is just a clip from the same documentary where um, the paperwork that's put into place to support him is really quite sinister. Uh, so here's just a short clip. At this point, I was trying to work out how to make this okay. And the only way I could make it okay in my mind was, okay, well, we will ask for an enormous amount of money. That is indicative of the crime. This payment is going to show how guilty he is. Dear Zelda, I'm writing to set out the agreement relating to the termination of your employment with Miramax Film Corp. What they wanted was pretty simple. They wanted us to never speak about anything to do with Miramax or Harvey or Bob, and obviously the incident, anything ever again. But it became pretty sinister when we weren't allowed to discuss this with a therapist. If we spoke to a therapist, the therapist had to sign a confidentiality agreement. If the therapist then broke that confidentiality agreement, we would be held responsible. We would be considered in breach of our contract. It also very clearly stipulates that if there is a civil or criminal case brought, that we have to provide reasonable assistance to help Miramax. You know, we had guns pointing at us from every direction. Um, you know, so basically they would pay you off or Weinstein would pay you off and you then couldn't speak about it because if you did, you would then be in breach of, of, of an agreement yourself. I mean, you couldn't even speak to a, a therapist about the fact that you'd been assaulted. And if you did, they had to sign something to say they would never speak about it again. Um... He was just, um, he has an entire machine around him to help him get away with crimes, basically. Um, and that he could just get away with abusing women and get away with it. Now, one of the most remarkable um, things that comes out in the investigation as well is um, how widespread Weinstein's control of the media was. So in one instance, um, a young reporter was asking him about a film that had been pushed back, its release had been pushed back, and she believed that it was because there was a lot of um, discussion at that point about violence in the media, and it was a film that was getting a lot of traction negatively because of, of the violence in it. She went to get a quote from him, he, Weinstein this is, he blew up very publicly and started calling her all sorts of names publicly, you know, a bitch and various other things. Her boyfriend stepped in, um, Harvey Weinstein dragged him out of, I think it was a restaurant, in a headlock. People are taking photographs of this all over the place. And then um, at one point he says, and this is captured on um phone um so this is this is a recording of what he actually said i'm glad i'm the fucking sheriff of this shit ass fucking town but the amazing thing is and i had to play that because it's unbelievable to think that that that's how he felt about himself um 
the two reporters then thought, well, obviously this story is going to be everywhere tomorrow because there are photographs of it everywhere. There are recordings of it everywhere. And the the bloke who was in a headlock by Weinstein, he says that um, the next morning the story was nowhere. No photograph has ever been found. And only that recording has been found because it was on his own personal phone. And no newspaper that he went to with the story was interested. Um, And I think that that really shows the dark side of the control Weinstein had. That he could almost overnight make an entire story about himself go. And any picture that was sent to a newspaper went because he had that high and low and far-reaching control over the media. So no wonder he could pay women off. If he could make photographs disappear, he could pay women off for assault, couldn't he, easily. Now, um, there is a podcast um, called The Harvey Weinstein Trial Unfiltered, where two journalists, at the time that the, the, the trial was taking place in January of 2020, they went to court every day and then they wrote up the testimonies and the transcripts and then they then recorded that so people could, obviously they couldn't access the court themselves, they could at least keep up to date with what was happening in the court. And um, it's on Spotify and various other things. And so you can listen to the actual um, uh, depositions and um, the defence and the prosecution questioning various people. Um, And you can hear it verbatim word for word with actors playing the parts um, and just reading out what what was actually said. And it's really, really interesting. one because of um I find like a lot of the legal jargon interesting anyway, but just in terms of the questioning of the defendant, the questioning of um people who are called up to give evidence, and also the two reporters themselves who I find a little bit questionable. Um but I'm just gonna play you a very short clip of the transcripts being read again by an actor. So this is one of the lead prosecution lawyers um outlining what they're going to be talking about um in terms of prosecuting Weinstein. Morning to that. So let's hear the actual words spoken by Miss Haas today. Thank you. During this trial, you are going to learn that the defendant was a savvy New York City businessman, that he was a famous, powerful Hollywood producer, living a lavish lifestyle that most of us will never know, and you'll come to learn most of us will not want to know. But the evidence, both from the witness stand and from exhibits admitted during the trial, will also show that that man was a sexual predator and a rapist. That in the winter in 1993-1994, when the defendant was starting to gain power in Hollywood, he violently and forcibly raped and orally sexually assaulted Annabella Shioria. Um Now, obviously, because of the nature of the, um, the, the allegations and crimes, that the language is very, very explicit, as you, as you can imagine. Um, but I find the... Um, First of all, the, being able to, to hear the trial, really interesting. 
um, from how obviously it has to be balanced both sides, understandably, and how the the defence pick apart a lot of what the women say. Um, so they pull apart, you know, really intricate things like, uh, you know, uh, the times when things happened and what women were wearing and why didn't you say this on a phone call um, and really try to play up the, um, the false memory arguments um, that things can't be remembered 27 years after the fact. Um, and they really go after one particular um, person who's called to give evidence uh, called Dr. Viv or Dr. Zev. Um, and she has done a lot of research on consent and uh, myths around rape survivors. And um, the reason that the prosecution brought her in was because one of the things that the Weinstein camp were using as evidence for him was the fact that there were loads of photographs of him laughing with Gwyneth Paltrow, of him giving Rose McGowan a hug, of him with um, Ashley Dudd at the Oscars. And so therefore, if they're smiling with him in a photograph, how on earth could he have assaulted them? And one of the things that the, the this particular woman says on the stand is that that's a complete expected behaviour of someone who is being assaulted because they try to carry on as normal. They don't want the perpetrator to think that they're going to go and like run off and tell the police about them. They are dealing with the guilt and the shame of what's happened that they feel that they're to blame. So they almost act more than okay with whoever it is that's done that to them to try and make sense of it in their head. Um, but what I find interesting about the particular podcast as well, and just go off kind of off base for a minute, is that the two people who are journal, who, the journalists who put the podcast together, I find their critique quite odd. So one, um, for the first three episodes, they pronounce Weinstein's name wrong. They call it Weinstein. And they have to be corrected by a listener who tells them that they're pronouncing his name wrong. You'd think if you're putting together an like an investigative journalistic piece on Weinstein, you'd at least say his name right. But there we go. Their tone is a bit odd as well. Um, they seem to almost mock some of the things that the women say. Um, and really pull apart. And I, 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 again, I don't know whether they're maybe doing it so it's completely neutral, but they seem to criticise the women an awful lot um, in, in the podcast and the write-up as well. They get, like I said, multiple names wrong. The woman that I've just mentioned there, they call Dr. Viv at times, Dr. Zev, Dr. Vev. You'd think they'd get the names of people right. And then what is also quite odd is that they ask the listeners for money. So if um, they say quite often, if you're enjoying this podcast, um, donate and we'll be able to keep it coming. Um, so that just seems at odds with, with what the purpose for the podcast should be, but maybe that's just me being critical. But just going back to the actual um, dialogue in the, um, the transcripts, the language used about Harvey Weinstein's really, really interesting because the um, prosecution um, only use um, his full name, Harvey Weinstein, Weinstein, or they refer to him 
in terms of his weight, so 300 pounds, his height of six feet, um, adjectives such as monster, titan, creature, pig and beast. Yeah, completely right. Um, whereas the prosecution, the defendant, sorry, only ever referred to him as Harvey. It's always Harvey, Harvey this, or Harvey that. Um, and so I find the language really interesting in terms of when they're obviously trying to get the jury on side. So the prosecution is all, he was £300, she was £100, he is a titan of Hollywood, she was an ingenue. Um, whereas the defence are, oh Harvey, Harvey, it's never his full name, it's Harvey. Um, and just from a linguistic point of view, I find that fascinating. Um Anyway, the point of this episode was that I wanted to bring the um, case to light because I've just been reading about it. I think it's fascinating, but also almost like as a carry on in more detail from the episode last week about um, the, uh, the role of media and particularly the role of media in the power imbalance between men and women. And this is a fantastic representation of that where women have far less power than men and that men like Weinstein, Trump, um, control the media and, la and and actively, you know, doctor what is going out there. Um, so clearly the idea that, um, that, that Lisa Bloom would be able to change a Google algorithm so that Weinstein would appear better than, than McGowan would, his actual victim, he would seem better on Google than she does. Um, that Weinstein had the power to make photographs of him beating someone up disappear overnight. Um, and that's why it's so easy for minorities, again, as I've mentioned in women, to be controlled and harassed online because men rule it. Um, if you want to, as I always suggest, go and look at these situations in more detail, I cannot um, stress enough to go and read She Said by Jodie Cantor and Megan Toohey. It's the most phenomenal non-fiction book. It seems like it would be fiction because it's fucking mental what Weinstein got away with, but it's non-fiction. Um, would definitely go and read it. It's unbelievable. The Fire and Fury book, Michael Wolff about Trump is equally as as interesting and bonkers um, that it, it that things like this get away with. Um, and then the collection of essays, Sisterhood is Forever, which is um, edited by Robin Morgan, um, has like a real historical look um, over decades of what women have had to put up with at the hands of the media, but all sorts of other issues as well. But I would definitely go and read that if you want to. Um, so this is obviously just a introduction to the, the, the Weinstein case, but there's so much around there to go and read. It's not the most uplifting situation, obviously, but I do think in another way, it really shows how when women pull together, um, like the two journalists, like the actresses who do eventually find the bravery to come out and talk about it, when women come together, they can start to dismantle the systemic um, power imbalance that has been there and that... Um, it really calls out the people who 
make that machine work and make it powerful. So um, as always, if you have any comments or questions um, or follow up suggestions of things that I might be interested in reading or finding out about, then by all means, let me know. Um, that one time podcast at yahoo.com or on my Instagram. And um, I hope that you've just found this topic um I want to say enlightening for want of a better word, but I do think it's this type of situation has to be spoken about and has to continue to be part of um, a dialogue. Otherwise, we'll never learn from it and things like this will just continue to happen again. Um, So thank you for listening. I know this has been quite a lengthy one, but I do appreciate it and I will speak to you soon. Have a good week.